We remain standing for the reading of the gospel. John's gospel, the 12th chapter. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who lose their lives and those who love their lives shall lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them for eternal life. If anyone serves me, they must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of the world, of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. I have to say that week after week, this congregation and this choir and this orchestra, when they're playing, give me such gifts, I don't even know how to begin to thank you. But know that it nurtures my very soul. John's Gospel likes to paint dramatic scenes. A large festival, big crowds, the biggest festival, the Passover, but it also meant big headaches for the Roman overlords. With the scent of revolution in the air, Roman soldiers patrolling, watching, worrying, a little afraid, a lot arrogant. Israelites have filled Jerusalem with crowds large enough to hide rebels in plain sight. Young men, angry men brush the knives hidden in their cloaks. They're like a forest and a drought waiting for one spark to erupt into fire and riot. A chance to stick a knife into somebody they deem an enemy. The hostility breathes life into wild rumors about messianic leaders. And one of those, a specific target of worry, is this guy Jesus Ever since his temple shenanigans, attacking their money, changing corruption, now he's back. And some say he raised Lazarus from the dead, and the crowds eat that up. The Roman governors and Israelite toadies worry 
Worry about a guy who could say a word, snap his fingers, and raise up rebels. And what would happen if you couldn't keep them dead after you killed them? No, this Jesus can no longer be tolerated. The word on the street is that he's in town again. At the very home of this Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And friends have surrounded the house and their great crowds restless to see and anxious for the next move. And then it kind of comes to an abrupt stop. And there's this beautiful scene where Mary, out of an overflowing sense of gratitude, takes this expensive ointment and pours it on Jesus' feet, anointing them. If you let yourself see that, it just takes your breath. And it feels out of place in this bubbling cauldron of fear and hope and violence that's about to be born. And then they're interrupted. They're interrupted by somebody who says, this ointment could have been sold. The money could have been shared with others. Could have been gone to the poor. And so men constantly interrupt women even then. And greed has intruded on gratitude. The treasure is noted for having sticky fingers. Maybe some of the money will go to the poor, but some of it will find its way into pockets of Judas. And the crowds outside still clamoring, wanting to see, and the Israelite leaders want no more of this threat to their power, no more of this threat to their wealth, and so they conspire to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Collateral damage, you see. And so it is that they plan to violate their own faith and violate their own humanity to keep their power and keep their money rolling in. They remind me of politicians who piously say, God bless America, while pursuing policies that really bless no one but themselves. With all these people crowding around, that's where our text starts. And some Greeks, some people of a different country, different race, they want to see Jesus too. And it goes through a committee. They present the word to Jesus, and he doesn't answer them. He says it's time. If you feel the crowd, if you feel the unrest of the time, you can see this coming. For Jesus to stay is to risk a certain arrest and likely death. He could run and hide. That's another option. But he says it's time. And then there's this monologue from Jesus. And John lets us glimpse the inner turmoil of his decision-making. And two things emerge from that, I think. One is that Jesus will die and that death will have great meaning. And the other is that those of us who wish to follow this Jesus are left a pattern. Jesus made a decision. It's time, he said. It's time to be glorified. He's choosing a path. Or rather, he is keeping on the choosing of a path that he chooses constantly. 
and it will lead to death. You see, demanding justice for your own makes you popular. Demanding justice for all makes you a target. Loving your own gets you loved in return. Loving everybody, then you're regarded as a traitor. Traitor to your race or to your tribe or your nation or your gender or your religion. Jesus makes a decision. And he follows it. He's not choosing martyrdom necessarily. He's choosing, I think, the way of the warrior. Oh, not the warrior with the AR-15 and the missile-guided laser thing. I like the definition from Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull would be such a wonderful name for a Baptist preacher. You can say things like that when you're the interim. You can get away with it. (laughs) Sidney Bull said, warriors are not what you think of as warriors. The warrior is not someone who fights because no one has the right to take another life. The warrior for us is one who sacrifices himself for the good of others. His task is to take care of the elderly, the defenseless, those who cannot provide for themselves, and above all, the children, the future of humanity. Wouldn't you love to tack that to some doors? Jesus does not ask to be saved. No. He says, this is why I've come. Mark Twain said the two most important days in a person's life are the day they're born and the day they realize why. Jesus says, this is why I was born. This is why I'm here. And he says these words, my soul is troubled. Why would the Son of God have a troubled soul? I mean, doesn't he know the the plan? He's going to... Die and rise from the dead, all be glorious and good in the end. Except in this passage, there's just no hint of resurrection. No assurance that everything will be okay. Kate Bowler, in her wonderful book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I Have Loved, talks about the Lenten season when she was going through chemo and wondering if she'll survive, doing all kinds of personal study, reflection, struggle. And how during that Lenten time, people say, it's going to be okay, there's a resurrection, you'll be fine in heaven, all kinds of things. And she, her comment was, people kept Eastering all over my Lent. Jesus makes a real decision that involves real pain. And he says it's all to glorify God. It really kind of sounds grandiose, doesn't it? To think that a speck of space dust could do something to add to the grandeur of God. But I believe it means, if I can paraphrase the prayer, 
In all that I do, let your character be revealed. And you look back through John's gospel and you see what he has done. Confronting corruption in the temple. Confronting the exploitation of the poor. Feeding a hungry crowd. Hearing the agony of parents who are shamed into self-blame for the blindness of their son. The raising of Lazarus from the dead. His prayer is, let everybody see who you are, God. The God of mercy and compassion and justice. Then there's this voice from heaven. And I love the fact that there's ambiguity about it. Some said it thundered. Thunders a lot in the spring. Some said it's the voice of an angel. A couple of weeks ago at Friday Church, the, the ensemble... They sing and they play the music and and Marty has a particularly compelling voice and I sat down beside her before the service started and I said to her, I really like your voice. But with all the ambient noise, she heard me say, I am hearing voices. (laughs) The look on her face was priceless. Like, how do I get out of here? This nut is going to speak. We all roll our eyes at the thought that somebody's going to come in and say, I'm hearing the voice of God. We know that history is littered with people who have claimed the voice of God as justification for horrific crimes. We know it's often those who are terribly mentally ill who hear voices. And yet, I want to remain open to possibilities that I do not understand. A voice came from heaven. Jesus gives a clue about listening. He says, the voice is for your sake, not for mine. Why isn't it for him? I think maybe because he's been listening all along. He heard the broken heart of the parents' anguish for their blind son. He heard the unholy sounds of deceit in the temple and the urgings of God to speak up for justice. He heard the grief of Mary and Martha as they buried their brother. He heard the voice of those who are outside the religious boundaries who simply want to see him. And in the last part of this, he says, when I'm lifted up, When the death comes, all, all, what a magnificent word, all will be drawn in. And it will show forth the character of this God who holds nothing back. And throughout this this monologue, there, there is woven this sense of what we are to do, what we need to do to follow Jesus. This call to embrace the knowledge of why we're here. Why we walk this earth. 
It's couched in metaphor about wheat giving itself to the earth and producing grain that feeds people. It's couched in confusing language of loving life and losing it and hating life and having eternal life. When I first read that, I thought, surely it must be Nina's turn to preach. But basically, it's a warning. If we never decide that something is worth our time, our effort, our lives, if we're never willing to invest in something beyond ourselves, we're walking around all hollowed out with no real meaning. And we have this example that Jesus is deciding in these moments that loving, no matter what, is how to live. And loving, no matter what, is how to show forth the character of God. Whoever serves me, said Jesus, follows me. And where I am, my servants will be. We've seen it in so many places, haven't we? You've done it. You've sat with a loved one. You've been to the funeral home. Some of you have given body parts to other people. You have wept with those who have wept. And you have rejoiced with those who have rejoiced. This is what it means. Langdon Gilkey wrote the book, The Shantung Compound, the story of men and women under pressure. It's the story of the Japanese internment camp in northern China. The Japanese had invaded China in World War II, and they rounded up everybody who could be a problem, which was pretty much everybody. They had teachers and professors. They had businessmen. They had missionaries. They had prostitutes. They had junkies. And they're placed in a compound about the size of two football fields. A lot of people crowded in there. Gilkey says they suffered privation, but not starvation. That they were not beaten, but they were never treated well. And he said, all of us, every last one of us turned inward. And there was no kindness No consideration to be shown to anyone. Everybody was just in on themselves. He said, we were so focused inward that we couldn't even see that we were. And then another prisoner was brought in, a man by the name of Eric Little. Little was a world-class runner. In the movie, The Chariots of the Fire, talks a little about his story. It's an old movie. He's also a missionary to China. And when he was brought in, things began to change because they said Eric Little smiled a lot. He organized games for the children. He organized worship for the adults. He taught science in the school. A Russian prostitute said he put up shelves for me and he was the only man who never expected anything in return. I wouldn't wish prison camp on myself or anybody else. But what a choice to choose, to to love like Jesus in that place. I don't know about everybody's place here. But it's a sense in which you have been given people 
to love. And following that, oh, that's life. Amen. We sing a hymn, 631. This is your time. We sing together.